Hi there, it's Nick here. Thanks so much for your continued support of the Nick Luck Daily Podcast. Wherever you consume your podcast, it is great to have you with us. I would alert you again to the racing app which is your one-stop shop and the easiest place now to download the show each and every morning as soon as it's ready. Many of you are doing so already, and that's not just because you can get access to all 880 episodes of this show, and very easily as well, but you can also watch live races. You can watch all the replays, and you can stream in the card with an active Fitstairs account. So do download it now, uh, the racing app. It's your one-stop shop and you will be able to catch up on all the previous episodes of your favourite daily racing podcast. You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Monday, January the 15th, and it's a lovely morning here in TW11 as well. The sun is high in the sky. The skies are blue. However, it is bitterly cold, and that is going to set the tone for the rest of the week. Forecast temperatures set to plunge midweek before some sort of recovery at the weekend. What that means is, are we going to get racing at Ascot for the big clash between El Fabiolo and John Bon on Saturday? And is the Lingfield Winter Million going to survive in its entirety, Friday and Sunday, the two jumping days sandwiching the all-weather uh, on Saturday. Uh, that is all to come, really, and no one is prepared to commit either way at this stage. We've had some pretty good stuff over the weekend. We've also had some interesting debates, too, sparked in part by David Walsh's Sunday Times column about the career of Bryony Frost and the reversals that she's suffered since the bullying case that you will be well familiar with by now. That plus an interesting couple of quotes from an interview given by rising star Charlotte Jones to Andrew Dietz in the Racing Post have prompted once again the question, are female riders being given due opportunity, particularly in jumps races, a question that we'll attempt to answer a little bit later in the programme. Reflecting on what's been happening on the track over the weekend, some most noteworthy performances in Ireland. The Lawlers of Nace went to Reed and Tommy Rongby, talking to Daryl Jacob, his rider, a little bit later in the programme. Spillance Towers, an impressive winner of the novice chase beating Blood Destiny at Punchestown yesterday. Uh, that was uh, the first leg of an important brace of winners for J.P. McManus, who's assembling this strong team. Mystical Power was the winner of the Grade 1 Moscow Flyer. Novice's hurdle by Galileo out of any power? Well, he should be able to run a little bit. Domestically, it was Skelton all the way. Uh, Dan Skelton dominated with a six-timer across three venues in Britain on Saturday. Uh, it is local and beloved Warwick and also at Kempton Park. His brother Harry was on duty at Warwick where he rode Grey Dawning to success in the Hampton Novice's chase. Just missed out on Gallia de Lito in the classic chase. And I caught up with him earlier this morning to ask him, uh, his thoughts on what had happened Saturday. Yeah, we'll take that, Nick. And a uh, great weekend for everyone involved. Um, you know, big team effort, horses winning all around the country. So, no, it's good. Uh, they're going well and long may that continue. I was particularly struck by the sheer joy that the victory of JJ Riley brought everyone at Kempton. Was that the, was that the surprise package? Not to his jockey, it, it seemed. No, to be honest, JJ Riley, um, he's been knocking at the door a little bit now. It's just... I think fences have been a bit of a struggle for him, really, on an undulating track, and he's definitely happier on a flat track, back over hurdles. 
he seems to enjoy hurdles a bit better. Um, but he, he's been running all right, but just um, just been struggling a little bit with the fences. Um, so, um, and Dan always said, to be fair to him, there's a good good race in that horse one day, and it all came right for him. So it's good. It, it was. It was a nice day for Tristan Durrell as well. He's clearly been a big part of your team now for a little while. Yeah, really, really, yeah, good, great weekend for him. Um, I get a lot of enjoyment actually, Nick. You know, seeing seeing, seeing him do well, and he's a real hard working lad. He came to us um, at sixteen and and never ridden any any race at all. And um, you know, I think he'll be the first to say it's been a work in progress, but he just keeps improving. And you know, he really deserves every chance he's getting. Um, he's got great attitude, works hard and an improving jockey. Uh, Grey Dawning was very good for you in the Hampton at, at Warwick. I mean, it set up beautifully, didn't it, with the two front runners and you could just stalk, but my, oh my, he won very, very well. Um, how close is he getting to the top of the tree, do you think? I think he's improving all the time. The race worked out well. Obviously, the two went, you know, when I had it up front, that's how I thought it'd pan out, um, but he quickened up real well. Um, he's not slow. He's not just, a, you know, now you know, now and out three miler, but he's got a bit of toe as well. And but I, I do think the way he races, he'll get any trip, but he's improving all the time. Um, and who knows where he might end up, but he, he's, he's getting there, isn't he? And Protector Rat's going to go to the Lingfield Winter Million if it's on this weekend. Are you looking forward to that? Yeah, that's the plan. He'll go there uh, on Sunday. Uh, lots of money up on on offer so um, we'll go down to Lingfield hopefully gets all the if, uh, if it gets the green lights and we'll be there on Sunday with Protector at yep and you're going to be quite mob handed this weekend as I say if the racing goes ahead yeah we've got plenty to go at because it's obviously great prize money um, been put up so we want to try and you know have a good good crack at that and we've got plenty of runners down there now talking of prize money um, apparently you've not had that good a season but as far as I can see you're sitting in second in the trainers championship Dan's sitting second in the trainers championship total earnings 137794 only 200,000 behind Paul Nichols not I'm sure Paul won't have noticed this yeah uh, um, <laughs> yeah not far behind him um, we'll keep trying uh, we'll keep going um, I think we you know um yeah, so suppose you set your own standards a little bit, don't you? I suppose on last year's standards, you know, maybe people might think we haven't had as good a year, but last year was was unbelievable, really. I mean, we went five weekends winning most of the big races. Um, you know, so, so it's a bit of a, you know, it's just reality, really. Um, you know, but the we've had a good, you know, had a good season so far. I think there's a lot to come from a lot of the horses. They, they've only really had one run. I think there's some fresh horses to go out in the spring, and I think um, I think there'll be some 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 plenty of races to be won with them. Mm. All right, that was Harry Skelton reflecting on an extraordinary weekend for their family firm, and you can see how much pleasure they took in one another's success. David Yates is with me today from the Daily Mirror, and David, if the season was being characterised as a rather beige one for the Skeltons suddenly there are glimpses of colour all over the place and whilst other trainers might be going through a quiet spell the next few weeks, they're going to hit the gas pedal. So it's going to get interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Now is the winter of our discontent turned glorious summer by the son of Alster. We thought that it, this was an underwhelming campaign for Dan Skelton and I think sometimes when 
uh, the racing media talk to racing practitioners and we put them a question to say, yeah, not things, you know, not quite where you want them to be, Dan. And they can answer, uh, no, no, things are going fine. They're just needing them more than uh, the first runs, more than we thought they would. Often there's a, there's a temptation, I think, in all of us to think, yeah, yeah, you know, we know that things aren't going that well. But I think that in this case, uh, what Dan Skelton said to us a couple of months ago um, has been borne out. Obviously, that uh, six-timer on Saturday, including uh, the Lanzarotti hurdle, um, was a the high point of the season thus far. But um, I spoke to the trainer on Saturday evening from his uh, holiday destination, which I think is Barbados, um, and he said he feels that um, not only have the horses, you know, sort of turned the corner for, for running, but um, he said that there was a policy whereby they wanted horses to be at their best in the second half of the season and in the spring. And if that sounds like a little bit of revisionism that maybe we might um, associate with uh, Skelton's former boss, Paul Nichols, who I think sometimes uh, is accused of that, well, it's being borne out here by the fact, isn't it? Um, a magnificent day at uh, on Saturday. The horses are going really well, and it looks as though they're going to have plenty of ammunition yet to fire uh, when we get to March and April. So in terms of the figures, um, Dan Skelton is, I think, just slightly behind where the stable would have been in terms of numbers, uh, but the prize money haul is very healthy indeed. All right. Well, the Skelton seven-timer was only narrowly foiled by uh, My Silver Lining, who showed tremendous attitude to win the, the classic chase. All hearts, a grey mare ridden by James Best for his mother-in-law, which everybody knows by now, uh, Celia Jovanovic, who, who joins me now. So great family celebrations. And Celia, it was pretty obvious on ITV afterwards that you were you were ecstatic uh, about this about this victory. Just just try and tell us why it why it meant quite so much to you. I absolutely adore the horse. I mean, she's beautiful. She knows that she is a princess. She's been nicknamed her royal beautifulness since shortly after she arrived in Emma's yard and probably didn't deserve such a nickname then but she knows she's a queen she's always wanted to be in the best box in the yard so you know keep that quiet from certain other stars at Emma's um, and Emma's been patient with her and we always knew she had ability but I don't think we knew she had this much ability so it's just a very very exciting journey and the fact that I've had so many disappointing things over the years with other horses just makes you appreciate it even more so for those who aren't familiar i mean i know you a little bit uh and i know that you've had a lot of experience across many many equestrian fields uh, just tell people a little about your own background with racehorse ownership well i came into racehorse ownership because my daughter izzy who's now married to james was a um, a national level level um, young event rider. She was on the um, under-21 British team in 2012. And when she decided that it was all too difficult and gave up a year or two later, suddenly horses were going to disappear from my life unless I did something. And national hunt racing seemed a natural move from that. And like so many people, I was incredibly lucky with my 
uh, one of my first horses, Cannington Brook, who won the Tommy Whittle twice. Um, I had a wonderful partner who made it all so much more fun because she knew a lot about racing already. She and her husband, Ken and Zara Biggins. Um, and of course, once you have a good horse, you get you get the bug and you get addicted. Um, there have been plenty of not so good and some really awful down days as well, you know, and terrible things have happened. But you just keep coming back for more because you love the horses. Well, Celia, you've immersed yourself in the sport as well. You're on the board of the Racehorse Owners Association. I know you're passionate about the ownership experience. How do you think we're getting on? I think that we really need to go back to basics on the race day experience and things like there being enough space, enough chairs in the owner train facility because most owners are older because that's when you have the disposable income to, you know, play at this game. And that age demographic really needs to sit down. They don't want to stand up for hours on end. And then once they realise they're too infirm to go racing without, a, without you know, being able to sit down and having a bit of space, um, you know, then suddenly they start wondering whether it's still worth having a horse. So I, I am absolutely obsessed with the idea of... Um, a chair for all in the owner trainer facility, uh, which sounds very basic. To be fair, the owner trainer um, experience uh, facilities have improved enormously. You know, the food and drink offering has improved enormously. And I think owners are treated so much better. You know, it's lovely being given a bottle of champagne when your horse comes second, which would never have happened 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, at the most basic level, it is the size and space of the owner training facilities, which I think really matters. Um, and I'm also involved with retraining of racehorses as the owner representative on that board. And that's another passion of mine as well, because one of the things that upsets people who are you know, a little bit ambivalent about racing is what happens to the horses after racing. You know, I think we get the message along very well that horses are treated superbly while they're in training, but they do get a bit invisible afterwards. And the Horses for Courses initiative is terrific for that and the paddock parades. Um, but it is really difficult because ROR does not have adequate funding to take on the uh, extended remit. A lot of promises have been made within the industry which have not really been followed up in. There's always a sort of jam tomorrow approach as far as we can see and the charity does has run at a massive deficit for the last two or three years um, and it should be funded by the industry. We do external fundraising um, and work hard at that but you know, it is really the industry's responsibility and there are these wonderful rehomers who take on these horses and give them the most amazing lives, often at no cost to the owner at all. It's through the trainer and the stable staff having contacts, you know, and so a lot of those horses just go on to very happy lives with no input from ROR at all but there are always the horses which are a bit more tricky to place where ROR is so essential in helping finance retraining where the owner is unable to um, or where something's gone wrong you know 10 years after a two-year-old's retired it's 12 years old and suddenly the owner dies or gets divorced or gets made redundant and you've got a vulnerable horse and that's 10 years after it's left racing so that's where ROR is there to pick up the pieces or to prevent the pieces, you know, falling apart in the first place.
That was Celia Jovanovic, racehorse owner and racehorse owner association board member, also heavily involved in retraining of racehorses. Obviously, wonderful success for her. A big family success as well, David. But I wanted to pick up a couple of points toward the end there. And particularly the point, simple though it may sound, that Celia was saying she wants to ensure that there is a chair for every owner who has a horse running on a race day because of the ageing demographic of racehorse owners and them actually still wanting to be able to enjoy a day out. Now, there might be some who scoff and say, this is hardly going to revive horse racing's fortunes or breathe new life into it. But it's sometimes the small things that matter the most. Yeah, I've said this consistently. Um, the the point I think I, I might have made on the, the the Nick like daily previously about you know the the pubs in your area that suddenly have they go from being the Mary Celeste to suddenly being uh, a hub of activity and and the place to be. It's not because the people involved spend millions of pounds uh, knocking the site uh, the the buildings down and then creating these magnificent new edifices. It's just because they consult with their customer base. Um, and I, I agree entirely with this. Um, I have a an experience myself from uh, the last decade when I had a third share in uh, a horse. I, I took my mother to the races when the horse made its debut in our colours. And uh, I went to the bar to buy my mother. I was driving. I went to buy my mother a gin and tonic. I said, uh, gin and tonic, please, with ice and lemon. And uh, the member of staff behind the bar said, oh, I'm sorry, we haven't got any lemon. And I thought, you know what? I could drive to the nearest pub, probably almost certainly within a mile of this race course, even a a, a, a pub that's not deemed uh, the best in, in the area, and say, a gin and tonic, please, with ice and lemon, and that's what would be served. All you need to go, all you need to do is go to Aldi and buy a bag of lemons. It's not going to cost you millions of quid. And the point with this, Nick, is, is you know, like in sport, they say, oh, you know, you, you can't win a game in the first 10 minutes, but you can lose it. And what you said about this might not be the um the, the solution to to racing's ills well no of course it's not but what you can do with your customer base is you can cheese them off pretty early so they decide to come back um and that's what ra racing is in danger of doing simple things like chairs you don't need to go and, and spend millions of pounds on chairs you just need to look at the age demographic of uh, your customer base see if they would like some chairs if they have enough chairs and if they don't go and buy some more as i say it, it people will scoff at this and think oh you know they they, they think that they're uh that they're, they're solving uh, solving the racing's problems by buying more chairs we don't think that at all but in order to uh, look after your customer base and to retain them it is the little things that matter and in this case uh the, the point about uh just basic facilities for people who visit the race course be they race goers or owners uh, it's extremely important as i say it's 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 hard to it's hard enough to keep um people owning horses at the at the cost these days and the returns that they get um and it's it's very important just to look after the basics so that they don't leave uh, an afternoon and think well i wouldn't go back there again 
All right, Banbridge was a very good winner at Kempton on Saturday on his seasonal debut. Uh, Joseph O'Brien trains him. Joseph, I know you'd you'd had him ticking over for a little while, waiting for the right opportunity. The right opportunity it was. What was your reaction to the performance? Yeah, I thought it was a very good performance, uh, Nick. Um, as as Ronnie uh, Bartlett, his, his owner, mentioned after the race, his jumping was a little bit rusty, particularly in the straight when the race was really on. But JJ got a good jump at the last from him, and um, I, I thought he, he really grounded it well to beat a very good horse. He's not a horse who's particularly flashy or, or exuberant, but he's got a tremendous record now and a tremendous CV. Is he a straightforward horse to train? Yeah, he really is. Um, um, he doesn't want the ground too soft, which which we learned pretty early in his career. So we've been conscious uh, to keep him on suitable conditions, and Ronnie has been very patient. Um, and uh, I think that's his tenth win for us now, and um, his first run outside novice company. So so he's 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 a horse who likes to win, and uh, when he's given his conditions, he, he generally performs right up to right up to expectations, and hopefully the best is yet to come. I think we'll probably see today that that was probably career best on figures um, um, uh, 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 in Kempton at the weekend. When you look at the the Ryanair betting now, there aren't too many ahead of him in that in that race. Are you pretty clear in your own mind that that is the the next definitive target for him? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Nick, he'll have a little freshen up, and and we, we'll we'll train him straight for the Ryanair. And like last year, um, um, you know, if conditions are not are not suitable on the day, we we probably end up waiting for entry. And and if this, if the conditions are suitable, he'd have to have a real life chance. And um, you know, a lot of the principals uh, are his competitors in the race are horses that you know are kind of in the in the latter end of their of their career, where he seems to be coming to the coming to the peak of his career. Hopefully, so that just give him a real life chance in that type of race. I know that you're particularly strong again in this in this juvenile hurdle division this season. Interlotto won on on his debut for you. Nurburgring has been running really well. You've got luck in the morning as well. Have you got a, a plan for the Dublin Racing Festival for any or all of those? Um, I think Intelato would probably go to to Leopardstown, um, and I will have to discuss that again with with Simon and Isaac and, and Anthony. Um, um, but that might be a logical spot for him. The Burgring will probably go straight to Cheltenham. Um, he's had three runs over hers already, so I think it makes sense to freshen him up and go straight to Cheltenham. And Lark in the morning obviously runs today, so um, um, that, yeah, we'll see how he gets on today, and that'll that'll firm up his. Plans. And for all it was a terrific performance by Bambridge, and indeed it was. It was a great finish between him and Pick Dory. The race was uh, marred by the fatal injury suffered by Not Long Till May, who we featured quite a bit on this podcast with trainer Laura Morgan. She spoke um, very movingly after the race about the contribution that horse had made to her career and to jump racing as a whole. Light, light campaign in which he'd shown extraordinary talent and you felt that you were only just getting started. It's a a bitter blow to a small stable. And we, of course, wish them all the very best. Uh, Edward Stone was a disappointment in the race. Uh, He failed to settle early on, raced very fresh and didn't appear to get home. But that'll leave Alan King and his connection with a bit of a head scratcher as to where to go next. Um, if he does go for the Ryanair, he's a pretty big price for it now, and that may yet look big, but maybe he will drop back to, to take in the champion chase again. Who knows? 
That's to come. Uh, Bambridge will certainly go to the Ryanair. David Yates, he is currently the second shortest price horse of those that are likely to run behind Alaho. Which would you prefer? I'd prefer Bambridge. I think that, you know, the, the I really like the, the, the shape of the betting of the, the Ryanair chase at the moment, Nick. And the reason that I like that is I think that Alaho is going to divide punter opinion. Um, we know that in the past he's been an absolutely awesome horse, particularly in the Ryanair chase. He's won two of them at an aggregate of 26 lengths. But is he quite the same horse now as he was? I think the evidence of the King George is that uh, the the injury that Alaho suffered has left its mark and he's he's as short as two to one uh, at the head of the betting for the Ryanair chase I think that opens the door for plenty of the others all right I wanted to wrap up some of the action in Ireland over the weekend uh, particularly the grade one hurdles and mystical power by Galileo out of Annie power well he should be able to run and he can Frank Berry talked to us a little bit about him on the podcast last week when we spanned through J.P. McManus's likely runners. He was positive about him, and the horse won the Moscow Flyer Novices Hurdle by quite a long way. It was a powerful uh, display of galloping. Is the horse professional enough, do you think, now, David Yates, to make a, a big impression come the spring? I think he's still got a bit to prove. Um, I'd like to see him... Uh, well, I don't suppose we're going to see him between uh, now and Cheltenham, are we? Um he took on just three rivals yesterday. His hurdling, there's still a bit of polish to be applied there, Nick. Um, remember, if, if you listen to Frank Berry, you would know that despite this horse's really regal bloodline, uh, mystical power wasn't thought of perhaps as one of the uh, the leading lights at Clusutton. And latterly, uh, he's made progress that suggests that he might be. Um, he was previously successful in in a novice hurdle at Galway uh, back in July and we hadn't seen mystical power since um clearly that was a massive step forward clearly there's plenty under the bonnet um if we have a big field for the supreme novices hurdle at Cheltenham in March that will put his jumping to certainly the sternest test uh, that it's experienced thus far and I fear that might be something that would find mystical power out um David Casey Willie Mullins assistant yesterday said we know that JP McManus has got uh Jericho de Repine who is the uh, who is the now the displaced favorite uh for the supreme novices of course trained by Nicky Henderson um he said they might want to keep them apart but in the case of mystical power, uh, they wouldn't want to be going further than two miles for the moment. So that put down a little bit of a marker that uh, we would like this horse to go for the two miler at the curtain raiser Mm. at the Cheltenham festival. He's clearly got lots of ability, but as I say, I think there is a bit of um, progress yet to be made in the jumping department. And if it's not, if he hasn't brushed it up by then, then the Supreme Novices hurdle will expose that. Wanted a word about Spillan's Tower as well. Lovely horse by Walk in the Park. Big striding horse who uh, outmuscled Blood Destiny in the novices' chase at um, at Punchestown yesterday. I watched the replay of this. It was a canny ride switching down to the inside, getting more out of the horse late. But he's a, a horse with loads of promise. And in, in, in Jimmy Mangan's hands, he's only going to keep improving slowly but surely. Yeah, absolutely. There, there was no... Uh, it was a shock in that Blood Destiny was the 5-2 to two on favourite. But certainly uh, Spillan's Tower is a, a horse who is 
progressing really well. It's a, a while now since uh, Jimmy Mangan was in the headlines with Montes Pass. Uh, 21 years. Uh, it was 2003 uh, when that horse triumphed and landed that gamble at Aintree. But it might be that the stable will now uh, be ready to return to the headlines because there was plenty to like about that. There's going to be more to come uh, from a horse who has just had four starts over fences. As I say, no element of fluke about that yesterday. Really promising. From is it Spillan? Spillan 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 Tower is, right. a, is a, um, the, it's a, the, it's a it's a light sort of a nineteenth um, century lighthouse type construction in Limerick on the banks of the river. So it's not a folly. It's a it's a lighthouse. No, it's not a, it's not a folly. It is a uh, lighthouse style stone construction in Limerick. Yeah, a bit of a cheesy link. I, I was just going to say it would be folly not to take this yeah. uh, this horse very seriously. But let very me, good. Edit that bit out. All right, well, since we were last with you on this podcast, we did have the running of the rescheduled Lawlers of Nace Novices Hurdle at Nace, of course, and it is a grade one, and it was won by a 16-to-1 shot. And it won't surprise you that the 16-to-1 shot was Willie Mullins' third string, fourth string, I think. And he had the one, two, three in the race, and Daryl Jacob rode the winner in the colours of his retaining owner, Simon Manier and Isaac Sweden, and he joins me now reading Tommy wrong. Well, we read the race wrong, Daryl, but we should know now that you're you're more than just a, a super sub when it comes to going to Ireland and, and riding for Willie Mullins because this, this has been a, a wonderful, rich seam at this stage of your career. How satisfying did Friday feel? Do you know what? It was it was just absolutely perfect, Nick. It was sort of something that I was I was hopeful um, and I was really looking forward to getting the opportunity um, to ride some of Simon and Isaac's good horses. Obviously, Willie's got enormous amount of uh, strength and depth in a, in a lot of them um, and a lot of them big races. And uh, you know, it was something looking at the the horses that we had for this year. You know, I was hoping uh, one or two of them opportunities might come around in in. One of these uh, great ones, and um, I'm just very grateful that I got the opportunity to to ride him, and um, you know, for him to win, it was absolutely magic. Um, you know, he's a wonderful horse. He's got a wonderful CV, and uh, you know, it was it was very very special. Nick, I have to admit, very very special. Okay, tell me a little bit about how high you think the horse can fly. He's clearly a Grade One winner now. He's very good, but in terms of whether he can then get into uh, spring festivals and be a real competitor and if he can what's going to be his optimum well i think the i think the um i think the world is his oyster at the moment because if you look at the race um on friday um for a grade one you generally to win a grade one you need everything to go very very swimmingly um and like i said before i was on plan z by the time i got to the second by the time i got to the second hurdle i got off at a nice position behind patrick we went a good strong gallop for the first four furlongs Patrick missed a couple of hurdles. He was back with me and he kind of put my horse out of rhythm a little bit. Um, I was a bit slow at the second and third um, and I was out the back. So uh, from there, I just sort of got into into a little bit of a pocket and I just I just wanted to ride the horse with, with to try and get some confidence to build on what he'd um, done previously. And... Um, in fair play to the horse. He, I went out with a with a circuit to go, and he jumped. I jumped one away to, from the stands, and he started to. I could just feel him. He started to grow in confidence with me. He started to travel better, and then he started jumping, jumping a bit more faster and a bit more fluent. 
And I was just getting, I was just getting the feeling that I was getting a horse that was just starting to come underneath me a little bit. So uh, that gave me a little bit of confidence. He gave himself obviously enormous amount of confidence. And I think the, the changing point or the big point in the race was at the back of three out, where myself and Rachel were sort of going for a gap. I gave my lad a squeeze to get into the gap slightly before Rachel, and um, I thought that was. You know, I thought what what he done there really showed the the nature of a good horse because he could have quite have easily shied out of that gap and let Rachel take it, but he got me into the gap. He wanted to get me into the gap, and then from there on, I got a lovely passage through following Paul, and I jumped two out well. And I knew my lad stayed being a point to pointer. I knew he'd stay really really well, and I just tried to have one run at Paul um, going to the last and. Uh, and fair play to my horse. Um, I think it was a, a monumental effort by him. He put his head down and uh, he dug really, really deep. And I thought Paul was—I thought Paul was very, very clever on his horse the whole way through the race. He stopped and he started, um, and he had a—it took all of my horse's uh, determination, might, will to to get up in the last fifty yards. Uh, you know, I thought they're two very, very good horses. Two very good horses. Now, you've raised quite an interesting point there. This is Paul Townend, of course, who rode Atlantique, who travelled like a horse who might want to come back in trip. Um, you, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Um, stay with me here. Uh, you clearly were, were born and brought up in, in Ireland, but have spent much of your riding career in England. And now you've got these opportunities to ride against the very best, on the very best from time to time, and are acquitting yourself with all the experience and guile that you, you would imagine. How has this experience or how have these experiences added something to your game at a late stage of your career? Well, it's, I absolutely, I love going, um, I love going back to Ireland. Um, it's a new challenge. Um, you know, obviously a lot of the race courses over in Ireland are very, very different to, to the race courses over here. Obviously, I've been riding over here for 23 years with the option back to Ireland, but for the last two and a half years, the opportunity to go back to Ireland and ride against uh, the cream of the cream over there, all of their top top jockeys over there, all of these different tracks. Um, it's a new challenge, you know, and it's something that I've I really relished and I've really, really enjoyed, Nick. Um, totally different style of racing over there, as everyone knows, um, different style of jockeys and you know, I really have to to be on my on my width whenever I go over there. They ride a lot closer um, to each other. There's obviously bigger fields, um, and it's a it's a great challenge, and it's a challenge that I'm I'm absolutely loving. I love going over there um, and riding against um, all of them, all of them top Irish jockeys, and uh, you know, and and fair play to them, Nick. They've been really, really nice and very, very supportive. They they've really accepted me whenever I've gone over there every week or or every couple. Of weeks, you know, even going in riding out um, at the races in the weigh room, the stewards, everyone—they've been—they've really, really accepted me. And you know, obviously, I know I'm from Ireland, but I'm very, very much feel at home going over there riding there at the moment. Daryl, obviously, we're all looking forward to this big clash at the end of the week between John Bon and El Fabiola. You're one of the very few people who've ridden and won on El Fabiola, but you can you can take a, a ringside seat and 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 tell me what you actually think of of how this matchup's going to going to unfold. El Fabiolo's uh, definitely improved an awful lot this year and I think with the freshness taken out of him whenever he won a cork that'll do him the world of good I think every race that he got uh, in last year he he settled more and jumped better and he looked more and more professional and I suppose he's still um, 
slightly inexperienced, if you like to say. So I think I think this year he's he's a bigger, he's a better. He feels bigger and better. I rode him at home um, a few times this year, and uh, I've loved what I've sat on this year. So you know that all stands him in really really good stead. And I thought it was a great performance uh, when he won down in Cork. Please God, the the race will go ahead, but um, the weather is obviously very very cold over here. So um, hopefully the weather will be kind to us and, and we can see this see this big clash that everyone wants to see. Uh, that was Daryl Jacob closing out there on uh, El Fabiola versus John Bond. Of course, Paul Townend will be riding El Fabiola because he rides the Willie Mullins horses, but Daryl Jacob slides in as second choice on the Mullins horses owned by his retaining owners, Munir and Suede. So he got a grade one victory on El Fabiola at the Dublin Racing Festival last year. And you saw him, as I said in the interview, uh, winning a grade one in Ireland on Friday. So uh, Yatesy... El Fab versus John Bond Ascot this weekend. It looks on again if if the ra- if the racing goes ahead. Yeah, that just I, I I spoke to um, Chris Dickles yesterday from Ascot, and he said that he didn't really want to go into print making predictions one way or the other uh, uh, just last night because you know that we were far enough away from Saturday afternoon uh, for the picture picture to change um i think he said that i am quoting him now but i, th- I think he said the worst of the forecast going into saturday is uh, minus 4 which obviously would give them problems but the the best case scenario is a couple of degrees warmer than that and they would be okay so let's just see how uh, the next couple of days unfold with el fabiolo he's really interesting and and one point i took uh, from that interview nick was the 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 view and it, it wouldn't exactly be a massive surprise that a horse going from 6 to 7 has strengthened up but the 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 thing that um i thought was characteristic of El Fabiolo's chasing career in its first season was obviously a horse who can run very fast, but a horse who is also capable of making the odd mistake. He did it at the Dublin Racing Festival, made a howler, but overcame that uh, to win convincingly, beating, of course, Banbridge, uh, and then subsequently followed up with a, a couple of uh, grade one wins in the Arkle, beating Jean Bon, and of course, then at Punchestown. Um, if his uh, stronger physique means that El Fabiolo uh, eradicates that uh, that tendency to make a jumping error, then he's going to be a real star. Um, I lamented, I think, on the NLD last week that I... I it would be a, it would be great if we had a really strong two two mile deci- um, division um, so that in the chasing department so we could see quite how good El Fabiolo is. But if as a stronger horse he's able to brush up his jumping, and of course there's no reason why he wouldn't be able to do that with experience. In any case, uh, then we've got something to look forward to over the next couple of years. The back page of the sports section of the Sunday Times yesterday was devoted to the usual weekly column from David Walsh, who quite occasionally writes a story about horse racing. He did yesterday. He's taken a particularly keen interest in the career of Bryony Frost, particularly since the case that involved uh, her being bullied by Robbie Dunn, for which he served a significant ban at the hands of the British Horse Racing Authority. Both riders now... Uh, in a rebuilding phase of their careers. And the concluding and powerful line of Walsh's piece is that racing had a treasure in Bryony Frost and closed ranks to bury it in the aftermath of that now extremely familiar case. 
And he cites the fact that Brownie Frost's rides have somewhat dried up and she rides for a relatively limited number of trainers. Now, today in the Racing Post, an interesting piece penned by Andrew Dietz charting the really extraordinary uh, strike rate and progress of rider Charlotte Jones. And one of the quotes in the piece that uh, Charlotte says, and Charlotte has ridden all her winners for trainer Jimmy Moffat and only gets a very small handful of outside rides. Charlotte says, five winners in a row, and I don't pick up an outside ride. If I was a boy, would that be different? Now, it may be um, folly and disingenuous to try and tie in these two cases, but one headline appears the same day as the other, uh, David, and the nub of the issue is the same. And the question remains, um, are female jockeys, and particularly female jumps jockeys, still getting a raw deal relative to their counterparts? Notwithstanding the fact that uh, Brani Frost's case uh, has a, a particular history to it that takes it into a different realm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you um, draw a distinction between flat and jumps there, Nick, because I think that largely down to the um, the, the efforts of, you know, I'm just singling out two jockeys, which is unfair, but particularly Hayley Turner and Holly Doyle, I think that the situation on the flat has never been better. Is there progress? Uh, is there room for further progress? Well, yes, of course there is. Um, is there a, a, a difference in the jumps weighing room? Is it is it a more uh, macho, for want of a better word, climate there uh, that in that way works against female jockeys? Um, in is that the case in Britain, but not in Ireland, where it, it's it's perfectly possible for um, a jockey like Rachel Blackmore to to break records and excel. My own view is that it's a bit more nuanced than uh, than it's been presented both in David Walsh's piece and in the in the media generally. Um, in Bryony Frost's case, w w if you ask me, has the case that the bullying case had a detrimental effect on Bryony Frost's career? I think it's impossible to deny that. If you then said to me, is that the only factor at play, I would say no. Not least, of course, is the fact that she broke a vertebra in a fall at Aintree in April 2022. That kept her off the track uh, for six months. She she returned with a, a winner on the flat at Goodwood in August. Uh, you referenced the article um, on Charlotte Jones. I think many of us have looked at Charlotte Jones over the last couple of years. And uh, when she's riding for Jimmy Moffat, we think, well, this, uh, this woman can ride really well and she's an absolute asset. I'm surprised that she gets, that she doesn't get uh, more outside rides. I had actually thought that maybe it was a case that uh, Jimmy Moffat said, yeah, I'd like you to ride for me and use your, use your claim uh, riding for me. That evidently isn't the case. Um, I'd, I'd like to see her getting more rides and and I hope that she does that in the future. Once again, though, and I'm, I might get pelters for this, but I'm going to say I think it is more nuanced than that. Uh, the quote is, uh, would this be the case if, if I were a boy? Well, it, it might very well be the case if you were a boy because there are, again, plenty of improving young jockeys, both flat and jumps, who don't get the... Uh, the rides that that 
they or many observers might agree uh, that they deserve. I, I, I'm I'm not a flat earther, Nick. I know that racing, like many areas of life, like uh, like every sport, still has progress to make uh, when it comes uh, to the opportunities the opportunities granted to win it, women. I'm just merely saying that in most cases, uh, it's more nuanced than it's presented in the media. All right, and Dave, still with me, has a tip for you for today. Yeah, I'm going to go with a horse who I've had a, a bit of a relationship with over the last few weeks. It's Gustav Graves in the 6.30 race at Wolverhampton. Uh, broke a long losing run when scoring at Dunstall Park two days after Christmas, then came from the back to finish third over the same five furlongs at Dunstall Park on the 2nd of this month. I still think this horse has got another win in him, and I hope it's this evening. 6.30 race at Wolverhampton, selection number seven, Gustav Graves. All right, David, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Monday, January the 15th, this bright and sunny morning. I'll be right back to do it again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. <laughs>